0: This is a little bit different than the sermons we've been preaching. If you remember, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're almost done with that, and yet I am switching off here to Jeremiah 29.1. In a little bit, I will tell you why. So this is the text of the letter, a little background here. The Israelites, because of their disobedience, have been exiled into the land of Babylon and are wondering what has happened and what are we to do in this land that you have brought us. Jeremiah 29.1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He entrusted the letter to Elisha, son of Shaphan, to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. For they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you. There's the word. and will bring you back to the place from which I carry you into exile. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. I want to call up in the Spirit of Youth Sunday, Austin Manning, who's going to read something for us here.
1: among men deriving their
0: just powers from the consent of the government now we don't want to leave any kids out so anyone from first to sixth grade if you know the Pledge of Allegiance will you go ahead and stand Logan will you help me and leave this just the kids first through uh, sixth grade if you know the Pledge of Allegiance please stand come on over here Logan Whoa, sorry you can leave them. Top 10 list, which is extremely accurate in forecasting what happens. So I have a couple of things here. The top 10 President Obama excuses. 10. I haven't slept an hour since 2008. 9. Ronnie's hair is mesmerizing. (laughs) Uh, 7. Haven't been the same since I quit smoking. Uh, 4. 3. Skip rehearsal just like Letterman. 2. Why don't you ask Ben Layton how I did? Number one, it's Bush's fault. (laughs) Now not just to roast President Obama, we have a couple things from Mitt Romney. The top 10 Mitt Romney pet peeves about Americans. Always whining about the need for food and shelter. Not enough guys named Mitt. Only a few, a very few have genuinely lustrous hair. Refuse to get high paying jobs. Always throwing a fit when they're fired. Sermons who feel entitled to occasional eye contact.
1: In all, in
0: all uh, sincerity, both these guys submitted uh, top 10 lists in, uh, in uh, good good fun. But we can't forget Jim Lair, can we? The moderator. Here's the top 10 signs you have a bad debate moderator. Number 10, fire starters pistol to begin debate is whisked away by security service. Opens event by saying everyone knows elections are a sham. Keep ask, keeps asking men if he'd like to concede. <laughs> Barely stops clicking, clipping his fingernails to ask a question. Every question is about canker sores, <laughs> And he's flanked by his goddesses. There you go, Jim Lair. You know, it's interesting about politics, isn't it? Politics and religion, they're not supposed to mix. Indeed, it's very uncomfortable when politics and religion mix. Even in the church, you know, if you want to clear out a dinner party, all you need to do is invite me and ask me to talk about politics. And the whole room will clear a pastor talking about politics. Well, today I want to talk about both. So some of you that came here are like, oh, I came to the wrong sermon. Well, it's not about tithing, so relax, okay? It could have been worse. See, the truth is why I'm preaching the sermon is many people have come to me and they've said, I'm a Christian. But how should I engage in this world? How should I engage in government and the political process? So my, my job is to go ahead and communicate a little bit about this. Now some of you may say, uh, preacher man, this is beyond your, uh, your knowledge and expertise. By the way, my brother-in-law calls me preacher man. I never, I never liked that, so uh, I'm gonna give him a phone call. Here are the two reasons why from the pulpit we should talk about government and politics. Number one, the scriptures teach us on the whole counsel of God, that we have what we need in the scriptures to understand what we need to live today. And so if I preach on families and business and raising kids, should I not also preach on government and politics? If I don't, what other things should I not preach on? Additionally, a controversial topic does not excuse us from preaching on it. The foundations of an ordered society are not in men, but in God himself, as we heard read. See, there are three institutions that God himself directly ordained. The family, the church, and the state. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. And so as we come to this passage, we need to examine how are we supposed to relate to the world around us. And this passage in Jeremiah teaches us a lot. Because the Lord of God, Lord of hosts, said to these exiles, build houses and live in them. Take wives and have sons and daughters, and give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on his behalf. For its welfare you will find your welfare. Now I don't know a message that could have stunned the Israelites more than this. We need a little bit of background See, the people in uh, 597 had been exiled, had been taken away by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And the result of that was these people were living in exile. They were wondering how to live, what to do. And the message of God was simply this. Because the future peace of your heavenly nation is secure, you must work for the peace of your earthly nation as well. Again, because the future peace the place where I will bring you, your heavenly nation is secured. You must work for the peace of your earthly nation as well. And so I wanna address three particular topics. Number one, should we engage in government and the political process? Should we engage? Number two, if, if we should, then how should we engage? And then the final question I wanna talk is about is why we should engage. And so back to the people here in Babylon. See, they've been been carried away to Babylon. And here is God saying, seek the peace of these people. Literally translated, seek the shalom. Shalom is much more than just peace. It's harmony and it's wholeness. It was what the Israelites were supposed to have. And yet God is saying, seek the shalom of these Babylonians. That must have been extremely frustrating. And it should have made them angry. Because here were the people that had come into their land who had captured them, who had killed some of them, who had ravished their temple, who had taken them far away from the house of God into a land that they did not know where they were captives. And here is what God is saying, to seek the shalom of this land, indeed, to pray for it. What a strange response. But I think sometimes we can relate to them, can't we? We live here in the United States and supposedly are Christians, and yet we feel that our culture has moved away from a place where we want it to be. See, it's not that we've necessarily been moved to another land. It's that the land has moved away from us. And so the question is, in this post-Christian world, how are we to respond to the nation where we find ourselves? In my experience, I've found that there are four ways that Christians respond to the world around them. The first is this, they despise the nation. They view the church as a fortress and choose to withdraw from public life. Indeed, to live a communal life and circle the wagons, not interested in what's going on beyond the reach of the four walls. The result of that is very simple, no influence. You know, when you think about it, Christianity and Christians used to dominate the public sphere. Whether it was great scientists like Nicholas Copernicus or Sir Francis Bacon, or Johann Kepler, great scientists who dedicated their uh, their discoveries to God. Johannes Gutenberg, who revolutionized the press and gave glory to God. Bach, who had nearly three-fourths of his 1,000 compositions were written for Jesus' worship. They called him the fifth evangelist. What about Lincoln, and Washington, and Adams, and Henry? and great writers like T.S. Eliot, who used to dominate the public sphere. And yet, where are they today? The church as a fortress. Well, the other thing that the church can become is not a fortress, but rather a mirror. See, the difference between withdrawing is the other place, to go forward and to become the nation. See, God said to these people, you're going to be here for a while. So settle down. And marry your your sons and your daughters. But he didn't say intermarry. He didn't say lose your identity and your religion. What he said is remain separate in the way that you live your life. And yet engage and seek the shalom of the people that you are among. See the reason that God said this was he knew how things were going to end up. Uh, In Jeremiah 29.10 at the bottom of your passage you will see this. For thus says the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. See, God was saying to these people, this is not your home, but you are going to be here for a while. See, the Israelites have this tendency to think that we are the people of God and everyone else is not. But as we look at the passage, as we look at the Bible, we see God's promises to Abraham. That through the seed of Abraham, his offspring, all nations would be blessed. Indeed, at the very end of the story of the Bible in Revelation 7-9, we see this picture that John said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. God had called these people albeit through exile and disobedience, to come into this world. But they were tempted to treat it as a fortress, or they were tempted to treat the world as a mirror. In fact, history shows when those 70 years were finished, many Israelites uh, decided not to go back because they were comfortable where they were. They had intermarried. They had lost the people they were meant to be. But there's another tendency Not to treat the church as a fortress or as a mirror, but as a space capsule. We're just passing through. We know that things are going to change for the better. And so we will not seek to impact the nation. Rather, we'll use it. We'll keep our heads down. We'll run a covert Christianity operation, if you will. Biding our time below the surface. But the place that God is calling the Israelites to and calling the church is simply this. To love the nation. To be leaven in the dough. To spread into the world. And to affect it for the cause of Christ. To seek, seek the shalom of society. And that call is no different for them than it is for me. Some of you have heard of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer was a clergyman who was appalled at what the Nazis were doing. And he laid out an understanding of how the church must behave with regard to the state. He said that first, the church must question the state. In a sense, it must call the government to account and be a voice that speaks out if and when the state is not behaving legitimately. Second, if the state is harming anyone, it is the role of the church to help those whom the state is harming. And third, and most radically, if the state is behaving wrongly, it is the role of the church to directly oppose the state. That really shook up the Germans. But Bonhoeffer said, I'm a Christian first and a German second. And Bonhoeffer saw that to the Nazis, who were social Darwinists, that human life was not sacred. You see, to the Nazis, a German Jew was no longer a human being in any way, and thus not Not uh, free to have rights and privileges. A mentally or physically handicapped person was disposable. Jewish babies could not be uh, could be legally aborted, but German babies could not. The truth of the matter is, as the Nazi iron fist came down upon the church, many church leaders capitulated and decided to put their head down as these atrocities continued. Not Bonhoeffer, he took to the street and the seminary and the pulpit, exposing the lies of the Nazis. See, Bonhoeffer had a choice, and he rallied the church, and the result of that was his death. See, the question I have for you today is this. God has called each one of us to settle down, to seek the shalom of a nation in which we live. So what is your attitude? Do you despise the nation? Do you withdraw from it and erect barriers, not wanting to be a part of what's going on out there? Or maybe are you being absorbed by the nation? That if someone looks at your life, they see no difference between the church and the world. That indeed, they cannot tell that you are a Christian at all. Maybe you're running a covert operation. Sunday is where I come to get my fix, and the rest of the time, I'm just keeping my head down, passing through. But God calls us not to do those things, but rather to bring love and shalom. See, it's not an accident that each of you have been placed where you are in this life and world. And so we must get comfortable, but not too comfortable, for we have work to do. This brings me to my second point. If we must engage, the question is where should we engage? There really are two places where we should engage. The first I call micro-engagement. This is us engaging with our neighbors, the person in the cubicle across the way, the person we work out with, showing the shalom, the love of Christ to everyone and anyone. But we must also affect things on the macro level. See, we must engage on the local and national state level as well. See, we need to understand the role of government in the world. It is well known when God said to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. What he was saying to man and woman was to go and build a civilization. Using all of your gifts, in the technology, in the arts, in the sciences, to bring glory to me. See, it's no surprise that the beginning of mankind was in the garden, but the end of mankind is in the city. And so this is part of what it means to have government. Indeed, the word government, Mamre, whatever that means in Latin, means to steer, to help set a course. And so government's responsibility is to set the course of people into the direction it must go. Now some of us would say, wait a second, Carlos, we're fallen people. Sin has come into the world. Now there is no use for government. But the truth of the matter is there's still benefits for government. First of all, God gives a common grace in government that helps to restrain evil and have order in the world, order in the nation, without it there being anarchy. There are blessings of government, even a fallen one, in that there are opportunity to pool together resources, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare of people. Additionally, the leaders that have been placed in power have been placed in power by God, even wicked leaders. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, Bonhoeffer would have some questions with that. And There's no time for me to go into all of those things at this point. That's for another sermon. But the point is that government is steering in its own way. But Jesus Christ has come to move government, to move people, to start moving in the right direction. See, Jesus Christ came to redeem the world, but not from the outside in. Rather, from the inside out. Interesting how Jesus came, isn't it? Not as a king. Not as a great procurator, but as a simple carpenter. But Jesus, by his life and his ministry, transformed the heart of people. And the natural extension of a heart that's transformed should move into the family. Should move into the city. Should move into the country uh, culture. Should move into the society. Should move into the government. See, Jesus gives us who are Christians new commands to live by. To love your neighbor as yourself. To go and make disciples of all nations. And the truth of the matter is a just society creates opportunities for us to extend love to our people, to the nation, and to have the opportunity to witness to Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures say in Galatians 6-9, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers you know why is this so difficult in america you know it's not like we're babylon you know think about it if i was to pull out a dollar right now i would see in god we trust we just read the preamble to the declaration of independence and we read the pledge of allegiance all of them making reference to God, the God we trust. Indeed, the very foundations of our freedoms are based not on the state, but on God. Because if they're based on the state, the state can take it away. See, the U.S. was an incredible experiment. There's been none like it in the civilized world. See, the genius of the founders was not in fomenting revolution. Plenty of people have done that. The genius of the founders was in their ability to sustain freedom. See, they understood three things that they had to win their freedom, which our people on the battlefield did. They needed to order our freedom, which was done through the Constitution, but they needed something to sustain our freedom. See, the truth of the matter is, as James Madison said, liberty may endanger by the abuses of liberty as well as the abuses of power. See, when one comes to power, there is that sense of entitlement, justifying whatever life choices. Whoever is in power controls the state. The French Revolution was the greatest picture of this, wasn't it? Seeking to have freedom for the state, and yet when they were in power, the guillotine began. See, unbridled license, license undermines liberty. And so there is a proper place for the Constitution. The, the founders said, that though the Constitution's barriers against the abuse of power are indispensable, they were only parchment barriers, and therefore could never be more than part of the answer. They were never the sole bulwark. In fact, the American founders, as Joseph de Maestra said, these people were not poor men who imagined that nations can be constituted with ink. Without strong ethics to support them, the best laws and the strongest institutions would only be ropes of sand. The founders knew one thing, that the way to sustain freedom was virtue. The only thing to counter avarice and greed and destruction was virtue. They knew the people needed more than just a document. John Adams put it this way, avarice, ambition, Revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. And so our founders came up with a a genius of structure that would allow us to have virtue to sustain our freedom. Some people call it the golden triangle. It was simply this, that freedom requires virtue. And virtue requires faith and faith requires freedom see they understood that freedom requires virtue virtues must be in the heart and soul of people virtues cannot be forced but they are required and so virtue living like this in such a way uh, requires faith all of the founders be the deists or Christians by the way, the vast majority of them were Christians, understood the need for transcendent principles, moral standards which the people could look to to understand what was right and wrong, what was good and bad. If you look upon the founding of our country, Christianity and the scriptures were the blueprints upon which our nation was built. But you see, faith requires freedom to choose faith. That's why the First Amendment was the capstone of the Constitution. Because you can't compel someone to have faith. You must only provide the means to promote it. We were built on Christian principles, but we were not meant to be a Christian nation in the sense of a theocratic nation. Rather to have freedom to choose faith, which would lead to virtue. This is what they called the democratic gamble. The best, most true, most human, most just, most liberating, most beautiful views must prevail in open debate in generation after generation. If they do not, the American experiment will fail in the end, especially if there is no agreement as to whether there is any such thing as truth underlying debates. So how are we doing? As we witness our country we see a nation that is not exploding, but imploding. A nation that quibbles over paper, something called the Constitution, because it is the only foundation that we have. How will we seek the welfare of a country that has lost its way? There was a man once who lived a life of privilege. He was the son of wealthy shipping merchants, and in his childhood he was able to have all of the blessings of a great education and experiences when his father died he inherited an enormous inheritance and spent his time as a profligate in the card at the card houses and in the dance halls indeed he used his money to purchase a seat in the house of commons but when william wilberforce encountered jesus christ it was converted to faith he reflected gravely on his life and the place where his nation was, and he began to see his life's purpose. My walk is a public one, he wrote in his diary. My business is in the world, and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post to which Providence seems to have assigned me. He became absorbed with the issue of slavery, so enormous, so dreadful, So irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. From this time, I will not rest until I effected its abolition. In the beginning, his anti-slavery bill was defeated by a landslide. When they saw that Wilberforce would not give up, pro-slavery forces targeted him, vilified him, did everything they could the opposition was so fierce that friends of Wilberforce feared for his life. But Wilberforce, after 26 years, after his health suffering, after being in bed and weeks at weeks of a time, got a chance to hear the abolishment of the stray, slave trade in the British Empire. But he didn't stop there. He continued to push on to make sure that the provisions were enforced. And right before the end of his life, he saw that slavery itself was abolished. See, Wilberforce was the son of privilege, and yet he so identified with the plight of the downtrodden slave that he gave his life in the pursuit of their freedom. That's why great men called him the conscience of a great nation. See, when Wilberforce entered Parliament, there were only three believers who were Christians. All the other Christians looked down upon politics and government. When William Wilberforce left Parliament, there were 200 Christians there? Can one person change a world? See, the problem with America is simply this without virtue, we cannot sustain freedom. And without faith, we cannot sustain virtue. And so it is our responsibility, as it was for the Israelites in Babylon, to be the conscience in a land that has lost its way. We must do this not only privately, but publicly. We must engage in government, and society, and politics. When you think about it, look at how much a hand the Christians have had in shaping the consciences of nations. In AD 374, Christian influence in the Roman government was responsible for outlining infanticide, child abandonment, child abandonment and abortion. It was responsible for outlining gladiator games in 404. It was responsible in outlawing branding of prisoners' faces. It was responsible for stopping the practice of human sacrifice among the Irish, the Prussians, and the Lithuanians. It was responsible for granting property rights and protections to women. It was responsible for banning polygamy. Christian influence was responsible for preventing the burning alive of widows in India, as well as the painful and crippling practice of binding young women's feet in China. And the list goes on and on and on see if you are a Christian the hallmark of your life should be your faith and if you are a Christian the natural uh, extension of your faith should be your virtue and your virtue should provide freedom so how are we doing does your faith in Christ move and dominate your life does it translate into the virtue of of how you live and how you love those around you and those afar. How is the freedom that you look to extend to people around you? By creating and being a part of promoting just laws that give people the opportunity to experience freedom and to seek faith. See, we have received from our Founding Fathers and indeed from God a grid For helping to steer government and so we must engage my friends let me tell you some different ways that we must engage we must engage in any sort of way that helps to promote freedom that helps to promote virtue and that helps to promote faith the first step is simply this vote choose to be a part of the process this is my registration card there are people in China and Russia who would kill to have something like this. We have an opportunity to engage because our government has given us the right to. In fact, there's even a way if you have not engaged to vote on that table out there, thanks to Hector, Falcon, wherever it is, where you can register to vote right here. So you have the opportunity to, uh, to uh, engage in the process. The second is you must look at the candidates I will tell you from the pulpit that I am very concerned about the religious suppression that I see in the nation right now. I'm very concerned about the current administration and what's going on with the chilling of religion in the public square. I was encouraged to hear Romney in the debate talking about God. But you know, talk is cheap. The real question is, will he do something to help strengthen religious freedom in this country? I don't know. Do your homework. Be a part of the process. In the next four years, it's quite possible that three different justices of the Supreme Court will be voted and elected on. You have to be a part of this. Secondly, I'm concerned that if we are Christians, we must be a part of the conscience of our nation. The practice of abortion is every bit as bad as the calumny of slavery. And any laws which seek to enforce those should be challenged by us. Because everyone has the right to dignity and freedom. But at the same time, we must love those who have been through this process and maybe made that choice. And we must not judge. We must rather extend the love of Christ to those people. What a terrible thing to rally against this practice of abortion and not extend a hand to love. But he who is without sin cast the first stone. We need government that will look after the poor and despised and those who have no rights. Both of the candidates right now lay out economic plans to do so. It's not my place in the pulpit to tell you which one is better or not. That's not a moral issue, it's an economic issue. But you must get involved and engage because surely it is our responsibility to look after our fellow man. Finally, we must look at the character of our leaders. Our country says that character does not matter. We know that that's not true. See, the truth of the matter is we don't know what's gonna happen in the next four years. There are going to be circumstances that are come up that cannot be foreseen, and we need a person of character. Can God work through the wicked? Absolutely. But it's better to have a man who has character. This leads me to my final point, which is this. As you hear all of these things, me talking about our responsibilities and our rights, it can feel overwhelming. How can I do anything? What can I do to change the world? I'm only one person, one woman, or one man. The reason we, as Christians, can engage in this debate can be a part of the process is because we have one who fo- we follow who did not neglect to do so himself. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was not content with the imploding of our world. And so Jesus Christ entered as a man to fight against the spiritual tyranny of the souls of man. Jesus Christ entered the world of his enemies and had the courage to stand had the courage and ability to give us freedom, to show us virtue, and to give us the gift of faith, even when we did not have it. See, it was Satan who tried to suppress him by tempting him to give up his virtue, and yet Christ continued. It was the government that sought to suppress him with an unjust trial and mockery on the cross, and yet Jesus Christ continued on. And so Jesus Christ became the conscience world that had him. He gives us a new heart if we follow him. And he gives us freedom and faith and virtue. The opportunity for a new life, a new love, and a new identity. And a new destiny. The place that he will surely bring us after our time of captivity. But God has also given each one of us in this church a current assignment. You are here. Build houses. Settle down. Give your children in marriage to one another. Seek the shalom of this place. For in the shalom of this place, you will experience the shalom as well. The fuel of engagement that we have, people of the church, is the gospel. So let the gospel challenge you. Let the gospel propel you. The love of Christ, his example, and his power through the Holy Spirit in the political realm. Some of you God is calling to get involved with politics and leadership. Maybe some of you young people. I encourage you don't just come to the pulpit to be a faithful Christian, go into public service. God has called each of you to its only place. The church must be the conscience of America and we must practice what we preach because the future peace of our heavenly nation is secure Let us then work for the peace of our heavenly and of our earthly nation as well. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for you who freed us from spiritual tyranny, who did not withdraw from the world, who did not become like the world, but who loved the world so much that he gave up his life, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. Lord, I pray for those in our congregation right now who have not experienced the freedom of having a father like you and a redeemer like your son, Jesus Christ, that they would give their lives and their faith in you. Lord, help us to be a church, both locally and nationally, who does not shrink from our responsibilities to love our neighbor as ourselves. Rather, let us, like the founding fathers, encourage freedom and faith and live lives of virtue, that they may see our lives and give praise to our Father in heaven. All of this we pray in Christ's name.
1: Amen.